Good morning, everyone. All right, so we are, um, we started last week, new series through the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 to 7, and uh, begins with the Beatitudes. So we did some introductory stuff and then looked at the first Beatitude last week, and this week we're going to look at the next two Beatitudes, okay? So we're going to kind of get ourselves situated again, a little bit of review, but also just recognizing where we are in the book of Matthew and, you know, what that means for us as we try to listen to Jesus and hear what he says. And then uh, we're going to look at uh, verses 4 and 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Okay, so first off, there's three points. Um, they'll be on the screen. You'll also see an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful to follow along that way. So first off, we need to get ourselves situated. And when I say we need to situate ourselves here, I mean it in two ways. So first off, we need to figure out where we are and what's going on, especially if you weren't here last week or if you're not so familiar with the Gospel of Matthew. Um, just a brief little uh, on-ramp may be helpful. So Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, has come on the scene. He's the son of David, like the genealogy says in chapter 1, which means he's got royal blood in his veins. So he was born in this miraculous way. All kinds of crazy things are said about him. Matthew writes that he was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, that this child would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. There were wise men that made an 800-mile trip after he was born and came and claimed that there were astrological phenomenon that pointed to the king of the Jews being born. They came to worship him and give him gifts. So you can imagine the like, expectation that's rising. Who, what is going on? When it was time then for his earthly ministry... He came to John the Baptist to be baptized. When he came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and the Spirit of God descended like a dove and came to rest on him. And there was a voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Then the Spirit of God led him out into the wilderness and he fasted 40 days and nights and then he was tempted by the devil. He successfully resisted the devil in his temptations. He emerged victorious. So Israel in the Old Testament was te tested in the wilderness and they failed. Jesus was tested in the wilderness and he succeeded. And then look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. We noted this last week, but we need to see it again and we're going to need to see it regularly because this is an important frame, kind of a, um, the beginning that frames this sermon. These words that Matthew records are Jesus' first kind of public words, at least the way that Matthew records it. 4.17, From that time, Jesus began pre to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So after that, he starts to gather disciples, and on account of his teaching and the fact that he's just healing all kinds of people, Crowds start to follow him, which brings us then to chapter 5. So look at 
chapter 5, verse 1, and we'll read the first five verses. So, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. This is why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So, as you can see here, Jesus is addressing his disciples first and foremost, right? So, when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. If we go all the way to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we realize that the crowds were also kind of gathered around listening. So, those who were curious... He certainly has a lot to say to them as well. But the primary point is that this is, for his disciples, the path of discipleship. These are like the ethics of his kingdom. So these are not entrance requirements. It's not do all this stuff and then, you know, maybe I'll let you in. So this sermon has been misinterpreted in different ways contexts over time. So Roman Catholicism interprets the Sermon on the Mount as the pathway to individual salvation, as conditions for justification to merit salvation and entrance into the kingdom. So they're right to see that this is real righteousness that Jesus is talking about that really matters, but they're wrong to think that these are conditions for justification. Bible is very clear. Justification comes by grace as a gift through faith in Christ alone. It's not a result of our merit, but the merit of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. So Lutherans, on the other hand, view the Sermon on the Mount as this impossibly high standard. It's like the law that leads us to the gospel. So certainly, The standard is high, and it feels impossible. Look at chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's impossible. Well, actually... You've got to know what Jesus is saying here and what he's not saying. Flip ahead to Matthew 23. So the, the Lutherans are right to see this is a high standard, but it's not an impossibly high standard. This is a different kind of righteousness than that of the Pharisees. Look at Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Jesus speaking here, hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So the kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about that characterizes his disciples starts in the heart and it comes from the inside out. It's authentic. It's God's grace entering in at the deepest level and changing us from the inside out so that it is real, grace-produced, spirit-produced 
righteousness in our lives. So, for instance, he's going to say, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, you you could outwardly never commit adultery, but be filled internally with lust. And it's the same situation. It's the same thing. You're not righteous. So what Jesus is after is an internal renovation. He wants to completely make us new, not paste us with some sort of whitewashed veneer. So, the kingdom has come in and through Christ, the Messiah. We've got to be saved from our sins. That's clear from Matthew 121. His name will be Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. And we are totally poor in spirit. We're spiritually bankrupt. We looked at that last week. We bring nothing to the table but debt, the debt of our sins. And it's infinite. We can't pay it off. We can't atone for our sins. We need a Savior. So, It certainly leads us to the gospel, but this really is the path of following Jesus and embodying these ethics in real life. So John Stott said this. He summarizes it well. He says, For the standards of the sermon are neither readily attainable by every man nor totally unattainable by any man. I'll give you a second. Did you track him with that? So the standards of the sermon are neither readily attainable by every man, because this is sobering and it's hard, we need grace, nor totally unattainable by any man. To put them beyond anybody's reach is to ignore the purpose of Christ's sermon. To put them within everybody's reach is to ignore the reality of man's sin. They are attainable, all right, but only by those who have experienced the new birth which Jesus told Nicodemus was the indispensable condition of seeing and entering God's kingdom. You must be born again. You need that internal renovation by grace so that you start to see the world right side up. And Jesus' pronouncements of the Beatitudes are like, oh yeah, because the world thinks the opposite. So as we head into the Beatitudes... We're situating ourselves here, right? So we understand the context. Okay, got that. This one is more practical as far as situating ourselves. We need to situate ourselves at Jesus' feet. This is not just like, you know, looking at an ancient document because it's curious and interesting. You're here, not by accident, but God himself wants to speak to you and me and address us and change us. He wants us to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He wants to change us from the inside out. So 417 is key. Will we take that posture this morning and as we go through the Sermon on the Mount? The king is here. He's got a word for us. He's bringing his kingdom. And those who wish to be his beloved citizens are going to need to change. We are going to need to change. But like I mentioned last week, repent is not this condescending scolding. You know, Jesus with a bullhorn on the corner with the sandwich board ready to whack us with a four-pound Bible upside the head. Repent is a gracious word. We're heading the wrong way. We are headed to our destruction. And he says, repent, turn around. I want to put you on the path of life. I want to give you life. I want to bless you. Trust me. 
So these Beatitudes are radical, to be sure. They ought to mess with us. We need to be careful we're not too familiar with them and kind of domesticate them and just kind of dismiss them. They ought to mess with us. We are going to need to change. They should disturb us, shake us loose from our comfort zones. But all of it is for our good. It's all for our good. And it's because King Jesus is the best king in the universe. He is perfectly benevolent and kind and loving. He knows what's good for us. He knows what is best for us. So the things he promises here are way better than we even allow ourselves to believe. So we need to situate ourselves at his feet with a humble, open posture, ready to listen and receive and follow. Like, lukewarm Christianity is miserable. Like, out with lukewarm Christianity, because guess what? Here's what happens. The sinful nature, like your sinful desires, are always, you know, getting, like, ruining the Spirit's fun, and the Spirit's always ruining your sinful desires fun, you know? So you're just miserable. So either, you know, you might as well have all the fun you can have in the world, and, you know, go to hell. Was it worth it? Or, okay, be done with it. Like, you do know what's best. You're not a celestial killjoy. I'm going all in with Jesus. And you actually realize that that is the blessed way, the blessed place, the blessed path. So, Bethel, and any of you that are guests with us this morning, I hope that we'll all take these words seriously, and we're not just showing up to kind of go through the motions, check off the box, you know, whatever. We're coming to hear from Jesus and be changed by him. I need it. I think we all need it. We need to sit at his feet and welcome his word and be both encouraged and, ouch, corrected, confronted. We need to respond. So these Beatitudes, a couple more quick things before we dive into the second Beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. These Beatitudes are not a menu from which you can choose the character qualities you like. They all hang together, just like the fruit of the Spirit. So it's not like, well, you know, I, I, that whole mercy thing, I think that's cool. Blessed are the merciful, for they sh shall be shown mercy. Great. I'll take that one. But that whole meekness thing, I don't know. I think I'm going to get trampled on, so I'm not going to pick that one. That one's for you, you know, person down the pew. No, they all hang together. Okay, we all need to hear all of them. So just to be clear about that. So last week we looked at poor in spirit. This week we're going to look at the next two. So turn to uh, verse 4, if you're not already there, chapter 5, verse 4, and let's look at comfort for the grieved. Okay, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So, <clears throat> um, <laughs> I recently got on Twitter, which is probably a mistake. Um, you know, I just wanted to make sure this thing was going to last. You know, I'm a little late to the party, I know. Um, but anyway, so there's a guy, Dana Ortland, that I know, lives in, in uh, Illinois. He's actually the son of Ray Ortland. You've heard me quote him before. So on 1-4-20, that's... Uh, January 4th, he wrote this. 
Some of the people who walk into our churches this weekend simply need a place to cry. They may not want to show it, but one ministry we can have is making space for the shedding of tears. Normal, quiet tears without fixing them. No place else all week dignifies tears. Jesus dignifies tears. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You're not going to hear that message in the world. (laughs) The world does not hold this up as hitting the jackpot. The world says, blessed are the happy people, for they shall be comfortable. Or blessed are the carefree, for they don't suffer. Or blessed are the lighthearted, for they're always relaxed. Fortunate are the humorous, for they will have fun. Or fortunate are the stoics, for they'll be unaffected by pain. So Jesus' words are so countercultural. He pities so many that the world would view as blessed and favored and lucky. Jesus says, in my kingdom, which is the true and lasting kingdom, the blessed ones, the favored ones, if I can use the language without implying that I believe in luck, the lucky ones are those who mourn. It is they who shall be comforted. So what is he talking about here? What kind of mourning is this? Well, First off, we've got to say that this is supernatural kingdom of Christ kind of mourning. Okay? This is not the mourning of bereavement, though Jesus cares about that. But it doesn't take supernatural grace, the blessing, the favor of God, to mourn the loss of a loved one. Okay? And I, again, I'm not minimizing that all. Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb, and that was a beautiful, fitting thing. But this is the mourning that follows on the heels of poverty of spirit, spiritual bankruptcy. It's mourning over your sin and the sin and the brokenness and the evil in this world. So if you don't mourn your sin, if you don't mourn the brokenness and sin in this world, if you just want to be left alone, just don't bother me with all the hurt around me. Let me just insulate myself from it and be comfortable. Your coldness is actually a curse. Blessed are those who mourn, who are alive to the brokenness within and without. So in the aftermath of King David's vile sin and exploitation of Bathsheba, and after Nathan the prophet confronted him, David broke and he repented and he mourned his sin. And in Psalm 51, where he records that brokenness, that lament, that plea for mercy and cleansing, He writes in verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, contrition over your sin. O God, you will not despise. Instead, you say, blessed are they who mourn their sin. They're clued into reality. Or think of the lament of Isaiah the prophet. He was the prophet of God. 
And he got into the presence of, of God in chapter 6, and he says, Woe is me! I am lost! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. Like, I am so dirty because he is so pure, and I see myself in the light of him. Or the apostle Paul grieving his sinful heart. In Romans 7.24, he said, Wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? So if you feel that way about your sin, if you resonate with those people, congratulations. That's what Jesus is saying here. You've been blessed by God, and you will be blessed because you shall be comforted. Consider Isaiah 57, 15. It kind of puts the first two Beatitudes together, the poverty of spirit and mourning over sin. Love this verse. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. But he's not afraid to get his hands dirty and get down low to meet us in our utter need but I also dwell with him who is of a contrite. That's like mourning over sin. Contrite and lowly spirit, poor in spirit. Why? Not to grind your face into the dust, you miserable wretch, (laughs) but to bless you, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So do you see? Blessed are they. Do we believe this? I mean, how can the sad ones be so fortunate? It's totally not celebrated in our world, which is why social media feeds are carefully curated with all the good moments. It's why you look over other people's lives on social media, especially when you're kind of down and you get depressed at all that you're missing out on and all that you're not doing, and my life is a mess and theirs is just picture perfect. Well, guess what? That's not reality. (laughs) And Jesus is the one here pronouncing reality. The comfort is for those who mourn. They're broken over their own sin and the sin of God's people and the sins of this broken world. So are you broken over your own sin? Do you hate it? Are you honest about it with God and with yourself and with others? And come to Him for forgiveness and cleansing by the blood of Jesus on the cross? Do you grieve how often you grieve the heart of God and fail to love or even sometimes hurt your neighbor? Does that brokenness weigh on your heart? Do you long for Jesus to come back and set this broken world to rights? You long for God to come and make things new? Well, then congratulations. You're blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, first, the comfort comes now by way of forgiveness and cleansing and reconciliation with God. We have a shepherd. We were straying. He brought us back. Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. And the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You're going to protect me from the threats. You're going to correct me and keep me on the path with you. So the comfort comes in this life, but we also know that this life is full of trouble. So the promise is future tense. They shall be comforted. 
The fullness of that comfort comes when Jesus returns. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The blessed ones. Jesus' disciples who trust him. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning. No more mourning. Totally comforted. No more crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Isn't that a sweet promise? I mean, I think the more that we know the wretched man that I am, the sweeter the promise is that we are one day going to be totally free from the curse and free from our sin and this world is going to be healed and fixed and there's not going to be any more mourning or crying or pain anymore. So the king has come. He's made pronouncements. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. I love this quote. Richard Sibb said this, We must with one eye look upon our sins to humble us and to look upon our hearts to grieve. But with the other eye, we must look upon God's mercy in Christ to comfort us. So even though this is totally countercultural, this shouldn't be that surprising to us if we know God, if we know the Bible, if we know Jesus, our King and our Savior. I'm just going to read several texts. They'll be up here. You can just follow along that way. It is beautiful how Jesus embodies both of these beatitudes, his tears and his meekness. We'll look at that in a minute. But let's first look at his tears. Hebrews 5, 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. The, the Savior, the King that we follow, he's a God who weeps. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that encouraging? Luke 19.41 Jesus drew near to the city Jerusalem. He wept over it. It broke his heart. The brokenness, the unbelief, the idolatry, the sin. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. Or, with Lazarus. Look at John eleven thirty three, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, Mary, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. So isn't it encouraging? Like if, if we mourn and weep and our Savior was just like, what's wrong with you? Like, suck it up. <laughs> That's not going to be that helpful. But Jesus dignifies our tears. De Jesus shares our tears. And Jesus can wipe away our tears. Our God is a God who weeps. In Isaiah 53... He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's 
why he came and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But yes, he was afflicted and smitten for us. He was cursed so that he could say to us, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, because I'm going to comfort you as I rescue you from your sin, and one day I will make sure that every tear is wiped away. It's why he came. One more, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So we, sh we should weep this morning as we consider the, the sanctity of human life Sunday. We should weep over the scourge that is abortion. For girls like the one in that video and the just horrific circumstances in lives like that, Lord, please use us to help bind up the broken. And the abuse of human trafficking, the blindness of our neighbors and family members to the glory of Christ. And we should mourn the angry, hateful, caustic speech that fills our public discourse and social media outlets. I mean, on and on and on and on. And let me also just apply it this way. If you have had an abortion and you mourn it, this beatitude is for you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You can be forgiven and comforted of any and every sin. There's no one beyond the reach of the grace of God. The real, like, pitiful thing is if we would actually live a charmed life and never recognize our deep need for a Savior. And if we insulated ourselves from the terrible brokenness of the world and the pain and suffering around us, you might think you have a blessed life, but Jesus would say, woe to you. Your future is terrifying. Even though you might be carefree and happy, in reality, you are not blessed. So those of us who know the weight of our sin and the, the brokenness of the world... Weeping may tarry for the night, but the day is dawning and joy comes with the morning and one day there will be nothing sad to mitigate our joy. There will be no counterbalancing sorrow to check or stifle our rejoicing. One day we will laugh. And it will not be the cheap laugh of the late night jesters. It will be the deep and durable and solid joys of all things made new and all things right and good and perfect and beautiful and happy. If you are in this kingdom, under this king, you are blessed. You are clued into reality. Things certainly are not as they ought to be. We shouldn't be comfortable with things as they are. So blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then thirdly, the abundant vindication of the meek. All right, so some of you are familiar with a book or a movie 
or a musical called Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Willy Wonka is a famous candy maker who built a candy empire, but he has no heir, no one to whom he can pass along his factory in the care of his workers, the Oompa Loompas, and all his candy secrets. So he comes up with a plan to hide five golden tickets among 50 million chocolate bars throughout the world. The five lucky children who find these golden tickets will get to, his, to tour his chocolate factory and win a lifetime supply of chocolate. The first four children who find these tickets are selfish and or intolerably entitled and pushy and demanding. The last child to find a ticket is the poor Charlie Bucket. His family is very poor. Each of the four nasty children make trouble for themselves and have to exit the tour early. Charlie alone is left. He's a humble and honest child, overwhelmingly grateful for the opportunity to tour the factory. Wonka ends up giving him not just a lifetime supply of chocolate, but he gives him the entire factory. So this poor, meek, humble boy is exalted to the pinnacle of the candy world, having inherited the whole chocolate factory. So Charlie is a picture of meekness. And that meek boy, not the pushy, demanding other children, even though they were kind of terribly caricatured, so it's a little easy to dismiss. But this meek boy inherits the chocolate world. So that's somewhat trite. This is very serious, but it still illustrates the point. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. In fact, the word for meek here was used in classical Greek to, to, be, to speak of a horse that was broken. So imagine like a mighty stallion. The fact that it's broken doesn't mean all of a sudden that it's just weak sauce. It's weakness that's under control. And that's what meekness is. So it means you're not pushy and self-willed, fighting to get your way. The world doesn't call that blessed. It says, blessed are the pushy and the self-willed, for they will get ahead. Cursed are the meek, for they're going to get trampled and won't get anywhere. Blessed are the tough who look out for number one, for they shall make something of themselves. And Jesus says, no. Trust me, you don't have to be your own savior, your own vindicator. Vengeance is not yours. Go look at Psalm 37 this afternoon, and you'll see this meekness worked out. Over and over again, trust in the Lord, do good. He will act. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently from him, for, uh, for him. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And then later it says, the meek shall inherit the land. So, Jesus says, trust me. But this is going to go against the grain of our hearts, right? We, we're so afraid of being trampled on or being used as a doormat that we just kind of dismiss this. In Matthew 5, 39, Jesus says, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So you can see why Jesus started out by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, because we're going to need to change. Now certainly this does not mean if you are being abused, let's say, 
in a marriage. This doesn't mean just take it. That's the spiritual thing. Not at all. In fact, Jesus stood up to the bullies. But what this does mean is we're going to need to repent of our pushiness, of how we want to throw our weight around to get what we want, of our prideful defensiveness and our desire to get in the last word. So meekness is actually poverty of spirit gone public. So if you're poor in spirit, you're not going to fight for your own rights. You're going to trust God and allow him to work for you and vindicate you. You don't take matters into your own hands when you think God isn't acting quickly enough or giving you the result that you want. Meekness is refusing to throw your weight around. Someone who is meek is not so concerned about his or or her own personal rights as he or she is concerned for the rights and needs of others. So blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Yes, you may get burned or be passed over or considered weak because you don't take matters into your own hands. You may not get the promotion because you refuse to step on others or tear down others in order to get there. You may not have gotten the bid because you refuse to cut corners. You may have lost face because you refuse to fight slanderous fire with fire. You may be burned or taken advantage of because you refuse to sue But you are blessed because you shall inherit the earth. You don't have to fight for your rights and your piece of the pie because you know that the whole thing is already yours. I just don't think we really believe that. I was just thinking about this yesterday. I'm like, I love planet earth. Anybody know what those TV, that kind of those episodes are about? Go look it up. It's, uh, what is it, BBC something or other, you know, like this amazing planet that we live on, just go watch planet Earth and then realize it's all yours. Like, you're going to inherit the Earth. (laughs) Seriously. If you're a disciple of Jesus, it all belongs to you. So imagine you're a 16-year-old and you have an inheritance of $50 million awaiting you at your 18th birthday. If somebody cheats you out of 100 bucks, you're going to sue them? You're going to waste your time going after them? Blessed are the meek. They're going to inherit the earth. Again, this doesn't mean that we just throw justice to the wind. Crimes are committed. People need to be held accountable. Absolutely. But man, we we just want ours. And we think of ourselves first so often. So repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right. Jesus is meek. We can learn from him this path. It's amazing. The the most glorious, powerful being in the universe shows up on the scene and he says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest, take my yoke on you and learn from me. I am meek, same word, and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So let's come to Jesus and let's follow him and learn from him. So the meek and humble Jesus went low and changed the world, and he bids us to humble ourselves. And not only does he promise to exalt us, but he will bless us that we might be a world-changing blessing to this cursed world. So I'm going to close 
by reading a section of a book, just like a page or so, um, that the elders are reading. It's a book called Everyday Church, and it's messing with us and um, challenging us in some good ways. So I'm going to read this, and then we'll sing a closing song and be done. So, when the apologists of the second and third centuries were defending Christianity, they pointed to the lives of the Christians as their strongest argument for giving Christians freedom. They lived as free men and women and used their freedom to do good. This is how the early church turned the world upside down. Commenting on the dramatic growth of the church during the first centuries of Christ, Rodney Stark, the American social scientist, points out that there was no great strategy, no leading personalities, and no mass communication. Alan Hirsch asks how the early Christians managed this rate of expansion because they just grew by leaps and bounds when they were an illegal religion with no church buildings, no Bibles in the hands of ordinary believers, no professional leadership, no youth groups, no worship bands, no seminaries, and no commentaries. And they made it hard to join the church. This was a grassroots movement of ordinary men and women doing everyday church and everyday mission. The constant threat of persecution drove the persecuted to live very close to their message. They simply cling to the gospel of Jesus and thus unlock its liberating power. Stark argues that Christianity grew because of the way it cared for people, both within the church and outside. He claims that two widespread epidemics during this period played a particularly significant role. Christians cared for one another, leading to greater survival rates. This, in turn, led to an increased proportion of Christians in urban centers, which meant more people's lives intersected with networks of Christians at a time when traditional social bonds were disrupted by the epidemics. Christians also cared for non-Christians, bringing these unbelievers into the sphere of Christian influence and commending the faith to pagans. Stark also cites a number of pagan sources that complained about the good reputation Christians were gaining. Pagan priests fled for their lives, while Christians were sustained by a more enduring hope. Stark also draws attention to the distinctive way the church treated women. Aborting babies was also a huge killer of women in this period, but Christian women were spared this. Pagans routinely practiced infanticide. Archaeologists have discovered sewers clogged with the bones of newborn girls. Not only did Christians prohibit this, but they would rescue abandoned infants and bring them into their own families. Female infanticide and mortality during abortions meant men outnumbered women in in the Roman Empire. Not so in the church. Christianity prospered in a culture in which people cared only for those in their own tribe. Popular entertainment involved watching people tortured and killed in the arena. In contrast... What Christianity gave to its converts was nothing less than their humanity. The meek and humble Jesus went low and changed the world. And he bids us come and humble ourselves because he wants to bless us and make us a world-changing blessing in this cursed world. Let's follow him. Amen.